Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we praise you. As we've already said, every good and perfect gift is from your hand. Even the smallest things, even the temporary things, and we are unworthy of them. And so I thank you and praise you. Lord, you've, also, you've already um, ministered to my heart and refreshed my soul on this text this morning. Though the truths of it are hard, the hard truths, the hardest truths in the Bible lead us to the most glorious reconciliations and the greatest gifts in the cosmos. And so I pray that you would give us ears to hear and a heart that is willing to examine ourselves. And oh, Father, I pray for any who is here who is unsure of their relationship to God, unsure of whether they will be in right standing with him when they see him face to face, which could be today. I pray, Father, that today would be the day of their salvation. Be glorified now, Father, in this time. We ask it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. The fact that you feel morally superior to other sinners will not shield you from the wrath of God. If you would, if you have your Bible, if you could stand with me and let's read our text for this morning, Romans, Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And yes, I said Romans chapter 2, and some of you will complain that I'm moving too quickly, but we're trying to strike a balance here. So here we are, Romans 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? He who has ears to hear, let him hear the word of the Lord. And you may be seated. Paul's been teaching us about the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, but before he reveals that salvation, he understands that we need to have a firm grasp on what Jesus is saving us from. And so for the past few weeks, we've been learning about the wrath of God. The reason the gospel is being revealed is because the wrath of God is be being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What does the wrath of God consist of? Well, we learned last week that while there are five different, at least five different kinds of wrath from God, Paul specifically has in mind the wrath of abandonment. The wrath of abandonment. Sometimes it's referred to in theological terms as judicial 
abandonment. And I've said this over the last two weeks, but it bears repeating. Beloved, listen, the worst thing that could ever happen to a sinner is for God to turn him over, to abandon him to his own unrestrained desires. It's the very thing that the world wants, and it is the very thing by which God judges them. And that's what God is doing. He's giving unbelievers over to their sin. First, as Paul represents it, he gives people over to their heterosexual lusts and then to homosexual lusts. And finally, he gives them over to a depraved mind by which the moral governor of the heart of man or woman is so completely calloused and disabled that their conscience becomes, becomes insensitive to the law of God that is written on their hearts. Hence the abject moral confusion in our world and in our country today. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is revealing to us not that the wrath of God will come someday, although that is true, but rather that it is already here. God is already abandoning people to their lusts. He's already turning people over to their desires. This is a frightening prospect when you think about what this means for individuals and communities and nations around the world. And frankly, it's easy for us as individuals to look at those individuals and point our bony, self-righteous finger at those who give themselves over to things like sins like homosexuality and, and other sins that we in, intuitively think really are worthy of the judgment of God. At the same time, however, we may think that Paul is, is not talking about relatively good people like us. I want that to sink in. Because relatively good people are in grave danger. You want to have an effective evangelistic ministry? You know the best place probably to go? Larry King could tell me this. Go to the prisons. You know why? They already know they're sinners. They know they're sinners. They're eager for someone to come. Many of them are eager to hear the gospel. But those of us who are pretty good... We view ourselves as relatively innocent. We're in danger. Such an illusion, however, gets immediately pulverized when, starting with verse 29 um, in, in chapter 1, Paul presents a list of 20 additional sins, most of which are typically considered inconsequential or even acceptable by popular standards of decency. I think Paul, in fact, I know Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, put him in this order. So that talking about heterosexuality and homosexuality and, and all the things he talks about, I mean, it's scandalous to us. And we say in our hearts, those dirty sinners, those dirty sinners. And, and then he goes on with the list of sins. And we realize he's, now he's talking to us. 
He hasn't even taken a breath. Sins such as covetousness, envy. Look at that text, starting with verse 29. Gossip, I'm, I'm just going to hit a few. Disobedience to parents. I mean, every, every parent is frustrated by that, but you wouldn't say that your child deserves hell for that, would we? I mean, sometimes. <laughs> Faithlessness. Faithlessness is one of the reasons the wrath of God is being revealed and other th sins that we commit on a fairly regular basis. They're in the same list. It's homosexuality and, and unrestrained heterosexuality. And you see, the problem is that we think God is like us. In fact, God even says that, I think, in Isaiah. God, through the prophet, says, You thought I was altogether like yourself. He is not. He's not like us. We think he's like us in the sense that we think he tolerates and winks at what we think are little peccadilloes that seem insignificant. Of course, God should judge the Hitlers and the Osama bin Ladens of the world, but surely good people, good people, like air quotes, good, good people like us, we don't deserve the wrath of God, right? Well, if we're talking about securing a reconciled relationship with God, we need to look to him for the answer. And when we do, that is, when we consider what God has said about these things, we learn that God makes no distinction. It's all the same list. All sin is active rebellion against God's rule. All sin. All sin violates God's law. Therefore, all sin deserves the judgment of God, the punishment of God, the wrath of God. Now, up to this point, Paul has been speaking about the Gentiles but as we step into chapter 2 now, the apostle to the Gentiles begins addressing his Jewish brothers. Isn't, isn't this wonderful? The, the apostle to the Gentiles is ministering to Gentiles, he himself being Jewish, and now speaks to the Jews. He begins addressing his Jewish brothers. Paul knows that he needs to address them because... Being a Jew himself, he understands how easy it is for Israelites to give themselves a pass regarding the sins that they have committed and commit. The same as us, same as we good people, we give ourselves a pass. After all, for the Jews, God himself called them, God called them his chosen people. They are the promised sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are not, if you're a Gentile. And they were the ones God rescued from Egypt by many signs and wonders. These were his special people. 
It was exclusively to them that God gave his prophets. To them, he gave the covenants and circumcision as the official sign of the covenant. The problem was that the Jews eventually viewed the mark of the covenant as the actual covenant itself. So anybody could get the mark. In other words, they began to think that God accepted them on the basis of having this mark, this circumcision. But that was never true. And I wish I had time for us to dive into the Old Testament and, and open that up to you. But you already know this is true. What, what God required was the circumcision of the heart. In verse 29 of the same chapter, this is chapter 2 of Romans, Paul makes this explicit, and we'll get there in a few weeks. But here's what he says, just as a preview that's appropriate here. He says in verse 29 of chapter 2, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, and not by the letter. Paul doesn't deny that the Jews were a privileged people. They were, and in some sense, even today, they are. Nevertheless, when it comes to meeting the Savior, needing him for salvation, they are no better off than the Gentiles. No better off than the Gentiles. And, and frankly, that's a hard pill for them to swallow. I mean, you talk about something to gag on. For the Jews... To be numbered among the Gentiles in terms of needing the salvation of the Lord because of their sin? I mean, in their minds, there was no comparison. To say the least, the Jews had a very low view of non-Jews. They hated the Gentiles. And some of the ancient rabbis referred to Gentile men as uncircumcised dogs. It's interesting that Paul, being a Jew in the book of Philippians, refers to the Jews who were coming into the Christian churches and saying that you need to be circumcised and obey the law for salvation. He calls them dogs. They were considered, the Gentiles were considered by the Jews as unclean, immoral. They were viewed as idolaters and filthy sinners, and indeed they were. In ancient Israel, Jewish men were taught. I mean, they had prescribed prayers. They would pray in the morning. They would pray in the afternoon. They would pray in the evening before they went to bed. And one of the prescribed prayers went like this. Blessed are you, O Lord, that you did not make me a Gentile. Many Jews believed that no Gentile would ever share in the eternal kingdom of God. Jews would never enter the home of a Gentile and they would certainly never eat their food. And because of these strong beliefs, Paul was rightly concerned that Jewish men and women who considered themselves so much holier before the eyes of God than everyone else, that they were in danger of failing to grasp their own need. 
What they needed is what Paul started out with in chapter 1 of Romans, namely in verse 16, when he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. For in it, the, what's the next word? The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And so what does every sinner need? Every sinner has unrighteousness. What every sinner needs is righteousness. And a major line of thinking and logic in, in, in Paul's writing here in Romans is answering the question, where do sinners get that righteousness? Not just Gentiles, but Jews. And beginning in chapter 2, that's who he's talking to, the Jews, who think that because they're pretty good and they have all these privileges, that they're good with God. And they're not. So while Paul's teaching here in chapter 2 applies to everyone, it was intended specifically for the Jews who are mentioned in verses, you can just write these down, I won't try to read them. It's chapter 2, verse 9, verse 10, verse 17, verse 28, 29, chapter 3, verse 1. And verse 9, this is how we know he's now speaking to the Jews. All of these verses demonstrate that Paul's chief concern here is that Jesus' Jesus's Jewish brothers and Paul's Jewish brothers, whom he loves, that they are in serious trouble because of their lackadaisical view, their flattened out view their inadequate view of their own sinfulness before the eyes of God. And he's determined to warn them that feeling more superior to other sinners will not shield you from the wrath of God. Just because you feel more righteous, and can I just give it the proper term, self-righteous, doesn't mean you will be shielded from the wrath of God. And Paul delivers this warning by talking about two kinds of judgment and two false hopes. Two kinds of judgment and two false hopes. Let's talk about the two kinds of judgment. First kind of judgment is human judgment. It's the kind of judgment that good people like you and I have toward our neighbors when we render against them a judgment for their sin. We look at them as sinful when they do something sinful. Or if they are blatantly homosexual, something inside of us says, that's wrong, that's wrong. We see someone steal, that's wrong. Someone gossip, that's wrong. Whatever it is. The word therefore here at the beginning Right, we're in verse 1. In fact, we're still in the first word of the text for the morning. Therefore, verse 1, points back to what Paul just said in the previous chapter. Namely, that since it has been established, chapter 1, 18 through 32, that the immoral practices of the Gentiles are an abomination to God, 
no one gets a pass for practicing sin. We are all without excuse before the eyes of God. He made that clear about the Gentiles, and now he's applying it to the Jews. Consider the people to whom Paul is writing. Paul says, watch this, you have no excuse, and you who judges, and you condemn yourself. Paul is speaking of the Jews in Rome, and the people to whom he is writing, the church in Rome, which was both Gentile and Jewish. And his Jewish readers are convinced that he must be speaking of the Gentiles. But no, eight times he says, but you, but you, but you, but you. And I would just say to you, you moralistic, dear religious people, you know who Paul's speaking of? You know who God's speaking to right now? He's speaking to you. He's speaking to you. He's speaking to you. This message is for you. Don't think in your mind, oh, man, this message is great. I wish Brother Bob was here. He needs to hear this. No, no, no. I need to hear this. I need to hear this. You who view yourselves as superior to other sinners, you who think God will overlook your sins, Paul's saying you have no excuse. Excuse there is the same word that we, from which we get apologetics, right? Making it a defense. You will have no defense before God. There will be no defense attorney for you in heaven. No matter how good you think you are, no matter how polished your reputation, the rewards you got for being a philanthropist or eminently good, no matter how elevated your self-esteem, When you judge others by their sinful behavior, verse 1, you judge yourself because, Paul says, you do the same thing. And you say, oh, that's not right. That's the problem here. That's not right. I, I've never committed homosexuality. I've never fornicated. I've never done anything really bad. You only think that because you have a low view of sin and a corresponding low view of God's holiness. You may say, I've never committed these sins. Well, perhaps you've never engaged in the actual sin. But as far as God is concerned, sin and righteousness are always matters of the, let's say it again, the heart. Isn't that what Jesus taught? Mark 7, 20 through 23. Just listen to the words of Jesus. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. He was responding to the Jews that were saying, depending on the food you eat, you may be defiled because some food is clean and some food is unclean in the eyes of God. Granted, in a ceremonial sense, as a distinguished people, God gave them laws relative to what they should eat, probably for their health as well. We don't know that, but, but it was part of the worship that God established. But Jesus understood 
that what the Pharisees were doing was they were taking those laws about food and saying, if you don't eat the food that is forbidden, then you will be pure in the eyes of God. And if you do eat forbidden food, you will be unclean and under God's judgment. And Jesus corrects this, and he says, what comes out of the person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the, what? The heart of man comes evil thoughts. Listen, pay attention to this list. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy. How'd that make the list? Slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things. This is still Jesus. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile the person. What defiles you is not what happens to you. What defiles you is what's going on in your heart place where no one can see, nobody can hear. And Paul's point is, no human being is exempt from that. You see, friends, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God is not merely concerned about external behavior, He's mostly concerned about what is going on in the heart because what you do is always a reflection of what you think and what you desire and what you fear. That's what Jesus meant when he said things like, if a man looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he's committed adultery in his heart already. And if a man becomes sinfully angry at someone, he commits murder in his heart. What's Jesus saying? Those of you who are moralistically self-righteous and believe that you're a good person in the eyes of God, he is just pulverized that thinking. You may say, but wait a minute, these things, these are true of everyone. We all become sinfully angry. That's right. We all struggle with various kinds of lust. That's right. All of us have gossiped, and all of us have slandered and boasted. And from, from time to time, we covet. We engage in idolatry. And that's exactly Paul's point. When we see and hear such sin in others, we typically form a negative moral judgment against them for their sin. And that is actually, this may shock you, that is actually a godly impulse. You don't think God has a negative moral judgment against that sin? It's part of the image of God in you. This is not Judge not lest you be judged. That's a different text, different context. He's saying, when you form a negative moral judgment against another person, it may not be a wrong judgment. It may be absolutely right. But don't condemn them for it. 
because your realization that they should be condemned for their sin should echo back at you. That while I may have never committed that outward sin, there is, as John Owen said, in my holiest prayers, enough sin to condemn the world to hell. This, my friend, is the judgment of man. The two kinds of judgment, this is the first, judgment of man. We judge one another's sin. But when Paul then, the next thing he does is he immediately switches over to the second kind of judgment, namely the judgment of God. <clears throat> Verse 2. He writes this. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. See what he's saying? We talked about this a lot last week. About the fact that sin deserves to be punished. Rebellion deserves to be punished. And the wrath of God is, is there to achieve that. It must be punished. It will be punished. If God is a righteous judge, he cannot let injustice pass. But it must be judged. It must be judged. And so he says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And notice he doesn't say on Gentiles. No, this is for everyone. This is a warning to everyone. Oh, my moralistic friend, Paul has just backed us all into a corner where there is no escape. You cannot get yourself out of this one. You are already in it. All of us are sinners, and all of us deserve the wrath of God. It doesn't matter what your spiritual privileges are. We already talked about the privileges of the Jews, but us Gentiles, us modern Gentiles, wearing some of us coat and tie and looking pretty clean, got a haircut last week, looking even cleaner, Perhaps you grew up in a Christian home. That's a privilege. It's a privilege not everybody has. But your faith can be in that. And it's misplaced faith. Maybe you were homeschooled and discipled by your parents. What a privilege. But you can be trusting in that. And thinking to yourself, hey, my mom kept me from being bad. And you can put your trust in that. Honor your mother today. Don't worship her. Maybe, maybe you've graduated from a Christian university. It's wonderful. Don't put your trust in that. You might read the Bible every day and attend church services, maybe even more than once a week. And those are wonderful things. And yes, they are wonderful privileges, but they make bad saviors. They cannot rescue you from the wrath that God says you deserve. So no one is justified in the eyes of God, Paul says, 
By their spiritual privileges and disciplines, no one gets a pass when it comes to sin. And every time you see sin in others and condemn it from the heart, you cast judgment upon yourself because in your heart you have often, you've often with your words and with your actions, you've often done the same thing. Or things that are so similar, it is not good to make a distinction. By judging others, you reveal that you too deserve the judgment of God. Jason and I were talking about this this morning. You know, every time we see sin in another person, this is a good counseling principle I want to develop sometime. Discipleship principle. When you see sin in your spouse, or in your children, or in your mom, or in your dad, or your coworkers, there may be a negative moral judgment that arises in your heart. And it would be good for you to say, yes, Lord, but by the grace of God, there go I. I am guilty of the same thing. God be merciful to me, the sinner. Paul doesn't use the term depravity here, but that's, that's the source of this great dilemma before God. Did you see these beautiful little children this morning? They are, maybe shocking, but they are all sinners. Every one of them. I suspect most of them have already demonstrated to their parents that quite clearly they are in rebellion against God and, and their parents. One of our grandbabies whose name will be removed from the text <laughs> parents were trying to, trying to get them to get her to eat that last piece of food and she would not eat it. Mm-mm-mm. Kick, spit, scream. And, and then she would be, when that didn't work, when violence didn't work, <laughs> she switched over to, to lying. And she can't talk. You say, well, how did she lie? Well, she took that piece of food and she put it in her mouth and went, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then she smiled and everyone said, yay! And then she spit it back out on her plate. <laughs> What did our parents have to do to teach that? <laughs> Nothing. It comes, it's part of the standard equipment. <laughs> Listen, your little beauty, your cutie, your little tyke, in those moments when that rebellion is coming out, he or she would just as soon hit you with their sippy cup in an attempt to do you harm than to submit to your rule or to God's. I heard Vodi Bakum say recently, God made them little so they couldn't kill you. (laughs) And God made them cute so you wouldn't kill them. (laughs) Or as John Street says, they are... They are little vipers in Christian diapers. (laughs) The point of all of this is we get it from birth. We get it from Adam. Paul's going to talk about that later on in our study. He warns us 
He warns all of us who believe we are good people. The moralistic Jews, the moralistic Gentiles. He warns them of the two judgments. The skewed judgment of man, which points to the righteous judgment of God. The two judgments. But then Paul turns to the two kinds of false hope. Once he's demolished or has used, demonstrated that what they do in their own hearts in terms of judging other people really says something about them and the same thing about them. Now he's going to war. Where do you go from here? Where do you go from here? Where do you put your hope? Because there are two major, in this text, two major false hopes that you need to be aware of. Two kinds of false hopes. Well, after backing us into the proverbial corner with regard to the judgment of all sin, Paul raises a relevant question that demolishes both false hopes. He asks, verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Can I just read that again? Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? This is a rhetorical question. Do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? And the answer should be a quiet, humble, Repentance. The answer should be no. No. I don't believe that I will escape the judgment. And right now, in your heart of hearts, you need to ask yourself, do I really believe that? Do I really believe that I will not escape the judgment of God in the day that I see him? So many people, when I'm trying to share the gospel and when you're sharing the gospel, we ask them, why do you believe that God will allow you, the sinner, to enter the kingdom of heaven? And they will, they will almost invariably say something along these lines. Well, I just believe that, that God will see that I'm a good person in heart and I think his gracious, he's a gracious God and because he is a gracious God, he'll let me in. My hope is in God's grace on the last day. That sounds good. And it's wrong. Oh, my friend, if this is your eternal hope, you are standing on a rotten plank over the eternal pit of everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Your judgment is imminent. Before you make it to the other side, the support under your feet will shatter and you will, you will fall into the just and righteous wrath of God. You who are good people. The hope you're clinging to, Paul says, is a false hope. It's a false hope. God will not receive you simply because he is gracious. Grace is not the only attribute of God. 
I plead with you to abandon this hope while you still can. God is not just a gracious God. He is a holy God. He is a righteous God. He's not just your father. He is judge. And he must judge sin. He must judge sin. And so that's the first hope that you would, he would think that God will accept you into his eternal kingdom because he's gracious. And Paul is saying, he will not. And then in verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Like the ancient Jews, many people presume upon the kindness and patience of God. Can you just, just for a moment, all eyes up here for a minute? So many people, their trust is in the grace of God that he will be kind to them. They look at how kind God has been to them. They look at all the blessings that they have received from the Lord. They may even give credit to God for those things. And the only reason my business is successful is because of the grace of God. The only reason why I'm still married is because of the grace of God. The reason that I've been able to overcome my addiction is by the grace of God. They will give in, in verbal glory to God. But no amount of kindness, no amount of kindness can save you. Such people will freely tell you that God is the source of every good thing in their life. Moreover, they may even be sensitive to the fact that they have received far more than they deserve. How many people do you know that when you ask them how you do it, they say, better than I deserve? And, and maybe that's true, and maybe they have a right perspective. I'm not saying everyone who does that is healthy, so don't, don't judge people on that. They know, they know they've sinned in many ways. God has always been kind to them. He's always been patient with them. And so they falsely conclude, mistakenly conclude, when I stand before God on the last day, God will simply overlook my sins as he has always done. His, his patience and forbearance will usher, usher me into the into heaven. I'm not saying I deserve it. My friend, that too is a false hope. Why? Because if God is righteous, he must punish your sin. He must punish your sin. There will be a day of reckoning. The fact that God has been kind and patient toward you so far is no indication that he will overlook your sin at the judgment. He cannot overlook your sin. To presume on his kindness and patience is a false hope. You may ask, well, how should I respond to, to all of God's kindness and patience toward me? Well, Paul gives us the answer. 
How do you respond to God's kindness and patience to you thus far? Answer, repent and believe. Repent. His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, Paul says. It is not meant to lead you to complacency about your sin. He's giving you more time, more time than you deserve. In his kindness and patience, he has given you time to own up to your rebellion against his rule over your life. This isn't little peccadilloes that you've committed. This, this is, these are not sins that, can, that are so small that they can be overlooked. No sin is so small that it can be overlooked. Every act of sin, every sin in the heart has been rebellion against God. And God is giving you time right now. He's giving you time right now to fall on your face before him and ask for the very thing you least deserve, namely forgiveness and reconciliation to God. Not on your merit of being good, but on the merit of Christ's righteousness and his death for you on the cross. Not merely his kindness, not merely his grace. I say to you, every sin must be punished. What I have not said to you, and Paul has not said yet and will later, is this, that every sin must be punished and you can pay it yourself. You can bear the punishment yourself forever. Or, by faith, you can believe what God has said. The reason Jesus came to earth was to fully pay for all of your sin. When he was beaten by the Roman guards, when he was nailed to the cross, when he was stabbed in the side, that, beloved, was the wrath of God. And worst of all, he was separated from his father. First time in eternity, the only time. You know what? Every one of those things and, and more are corresponding descriptions of hell. Separated from God. A place where there is unquenchable fire, where the worm never dies. On what basis will he forgive you? Not because you're a good person, not because he's kind and gracious, but because he sent his son to bear the wrath of God. Your sin has already been paid for. And you can receive that payment if you will humble yourself, you good person. And repent, not just of your sins, but repent of all your righteousness, which amounts to nothing in God's eyes, saving you. The fact that you feel morally superior to other sinners will not shield you from the wrath of God. Will you not this day do business with God? Will you not this day give up 
your false hope? Will you not fly to Christ, who is your risen and living hope? Now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. If you come to him, you will be received by him. But you must come. And I'm not telling you to walk down to the front of the church. I mean, right now in your heart, say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, on the basis of Jesus' blood and righteousness, forgive me. I'm unworthy of it. The only thing I have to offer you is my sin. Will you receive me? Will you reckon the curse that you placed on Christ as the curse that I deserved? Come to me, all of you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Beloved, good people need the righteousness of God. And the only place where you can get the righteousness of God is not by becoming a better lawkeeper, not resting on your spiritual privileges, but rather obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Will you believe today? So, Father, we praise you that the first two chapters of Romans are not the end of the book of Romans. There is so much glory here in the unpacking of your salvation as you have revealed it to us in your word. But even now, Father, I pray that no one will wait for the end of Romans that they would not wait another moment, that even now in their hearts, you, O Father, who sees the heart and knows the heart, would you give them the capacity in their heart to repent and believe and to put all of their hope in the life and death of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we praise you for this gift of salvation, and we give you thanks for it in the name of our Savior, Jesus.